chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 1 through 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you should find one there in the seat in front of you. And if you're in that version, you can be on page 400, 400. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Here, Nehemiah is uh, continuing on in his account as he has seen the need in Jerusalem. That the walls have been torn down and now they are being built once again. And as they are being built, the, all of Israel has, has come together. That we saw last week in chapter 3 as Pastor Steve took us through it. That uh, the goldsmiths and uh, the perfumers and the priests and the nobles and... Uh, the daughters and the sons of, of Israel at large uh, committed themselves to this work. That they have heard the call of Nehemiah there at the end of chapter 2 where he uh, essentially is saying, let us rise up and build. He's inspected the walls. He's, he's seen the disrepair. He's seen the reproach. Not just as a reproach as this city is, is somehow unsafe, but it is a, a city which is defining the, nar- uh, the nature and character of God to the peoples around them. That God's name is in question here in this place. And so in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we see really those that are opposing the name of God. We we see the full work that is, is coming into question here. And what we see is that because justice belongs to God, that we can resolve to work steadfastly in the face of this opposition. So let's begin by looking at the text, Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now when Sanballat heard that, there, that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and in the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burnt ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. What we see here is we begin to become face to face with this voice of opposition. Sanballat and and Tobiah here and uh, the armies of Samaria and, and their brothers are all gathering along the wall. They are seeing what Israel is doing. They're seeing what Nehemiah is leading the people to build as they have begun the work. What we see is that earlier, when Nehemiah first came to this city, that the same Sanballat and, and, and Tobiah, it says that they were, they were annoyed, they were irritated that someone had come to seek the welfare of Jerusalem. And it's kind of this, this tension and, and this balance of, of here is Nehemiah hearing of what is happening in Jerusalem, hearing that the walls have been burnt, that the uh, temple had been destroyed, and, and that the people are, are just in reproach at large. 
And, and he is broken over it, that he is driven to, to weeping and mourning for, for days before finally responding and, and coming to the king and, and asking for him to, to be able to not only return and repair, but, but for Artaxerxes to, to fund the project at large. And all of this, this response of, of bitterness and, and care and anger and, and frustration with the, the reproach of these walls it is met as soon as he gets there by those who instead are annoyed that he would seek their good. That he would care for Israel in this way, knowing that these are the surrounding governors, that they had power and influence to lose. But now this annoyance and bitterness has turned to irritation and anger. What was just, ah, this guy is coming in, has now turned to, how dare you? Kathy Dolan observes of this text, she says that mockery is a means of masquerading one's insecurity, of feigning confidence. As the suspicion of one's weakness grows more apparent, it is the language of the bully. And that's what we see as Sanvalad and and Tobiah are here, and, and they are bullies, they, they come up to the walls, and they don't just come up to the walls like it's, it's a cheesy 80s movie, right? They, they pull up, and here, here's their gang, right? Here's their, their crew, and they're just going to stand out there and just watch what you're doing. Oh, you, you think that you're going to build these things? We, we're just going to stand over here and, and just flex a little bit. Just see our strength. See who, who's surrounding you and turning to mocking. And what does this mockery look like? What does it sound like here? Well, there, there are three ways that this opposition charges itself against Israel. And the very first one, it shows that it is rooted in prejudice. That these are other nations, other people surrounding the wall. Specifically here, those are of Samaria and uh, those of Ammon and those surrounding this, this city. And what do they respond? They say, what are these, what are these feeble Jews doing? That anti-Semitism did not arise for the first time in the 1920s. But it exists all throughout scripture. This is the heart and behavior towards those that are made in the image of God. That these Samaritans are those who were left behind uh, from exile and began to intermarry with these other nations. What we see is that in in this setting, in this context, this Prejudice is one that's going to continue and carry well into the New Testament. Even as it's inverted in Christ's teaching, as he's speaking to the Jews, and now they are not saying, we are the feeble Jews, but instead those feeble Samaritans. That this hatred and rejection of those that are made in the image of God, Ben Witherington says, instead, when the dominion of God breaks into human lives and situations, old prejudices pass away, and a new and shocking pattern of behavior comes to pass. We see this in the ministry of Jesus as he goes to the, the woman at the well. It's not just that she was an outcast from her society. It was that this was a Samaritan woman and that he was a Jew. This is building on this conflict that we see here in Nehemiah. What are these feeble Jews doing? What are these people doing? That this prejudice, this racism is seen here in the New Testament and beyond because it is in our very hearts. That the sin of racism is something that we have to root out subtle and overt because it is sin, because it is prejudice, and only Christ 
as the answer. So he's charged with his opposition, and he stands steadfast. What else does this opposition do? Well, the first thing, or the second thing that it does is that it questions their ability. He raises up, what are, what are they going to do? What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? There in the Hebrew, it basically just says, will they restore things? Not just the wall, but they're talking about life and vitality at large. That you are an exiled people. You're trying to, to come back to what it was like before exile? Are, are you just going to restore things? Are you able to do this? Further, will you uh, restore these things? Will you sacrifice? Will you finish it in a day? Are you going to revive stones out of the heaps? Are you, are you going to take these burned things? Are you going to unburn them somehow? You are incapable. They scorn the ability of Israel as well as the Lord himself to strengthen it. When, when they say, are, are you going to sacrifice? You say, they're, they're saying, listen, you were exiled. Your God could not keep you in this land, failing to understand that it was God himself who sent the Babylonians. Are, are you going to sacrifice? Is your God going to come down and help you build these walls? Is he going to loan you a hammer? This restoration is not just of the wall, but of vitality at large. What can you do? What can you finish? What can you produce? What can your God do? What we see is that in Scripture, God's work, the great works of God are marked by derision. When Noah was building his ark, his neighbors mocked. When Israel was facing the Philistines, Goliath, Christ was there on the cross. He was mocked. This is not new to the work of God. The irony of it is that these Samaritans, Bede points out that the Samaria, uh, that Samaritans literally means from the Hebrew, defenders of God's law. And yet they're so at odds with what God is doing. And we have this in our culture and in our, our world today, those that are accusers of the faith, sometimes even calling themselves defenders of God's law or defenders of God's word. Uh, these discernment bloggers that are, are writing and accusing those that are, are doing these things and they are saying, will you finish in a day? Will you rise up and build? Will you do these things for God? You are incapable. Not only do they say that they are uh, feeble, that they are weak, they're questioning their ability, but they also question the quality of the work itself. As Tobiah comes and he says, look, this thing that they're building, if a fox were to go up and, and stand on it, the whole thing's going to crash. It it's just won't last. That this light-footed, this solitary creature is the straw on the camel's back that what you are building is nothing. That onlookers are, are looking to our work and our response in the world. They want to know, do Christians cut corners? Is what we build going to last? Is it going to work? Is God capable? Because there are times that we look at our work in the world and we misunderstand what God has called us to do. We think that because God has called us to a Christian work, that that work therefore should be Christian. And what I mean by that is we think that the work itself, regardless of what field or sphere we find ourselves in, 
that it's only the Christian thing is if we use that work, we use that job for its resources. So we, we go and we sell insurance and we take the money that we earn from that and we give it to the church. And that's the Christian work. Or, or we go and we sell insurance and we speak with these people that don't know Christ and then evangelism comes out. And that's the Christian work. But we don't view our, our task and our work itself as the work to which God has called us. We don't look to the way that he has gifted us in the medical field or with our hands as mechanics or carpenters or, or whatever you find yourself doing. That is a non-Christian work and what we do is we take money and we send missionaries out in the field and, and they do the work. Martin Luther confronts this type of thinking, this, this question of our quality, of our ability, of those that are saying to us, you are incapable. You, you are not a professional Christian, whatever that means. And this is what Luther says. He says, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays, not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. He goes on, he says, the Christian shoemaker does not, or does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. God has placed you where you are. The ways that you are gifted, the ways that you are serving, it's not that this is spiritual and this is secular. It's not that we, we take money or send missionaries or, or share the gospel alone. Absolutely, we do these things. Absolutely, we should celebrate these things. But also recognize that the work that you do can testify to the goodness of God. These people are being reproached. They're being insulted. They're being told that they are incapable, that their building will not last. And their work itself is a response. But their words do something else as well. Notice what Nehemiah does. In verse 4, he says, Hear, O God. He doesn't turn to Sanballat. He doesn't turn to Tobiah. He doesn't respond to them. Instead, he goes to the Lord. He cries out before God, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. In the face of opposition, Nehemiah cries to God. And what does he cry? Lord, carry out divine justice. His prayer here in, in verses 4 and 5 is a theme that we see uh, throughout the Old Testament. Some places in the New. What we call them uh, in the Psalms is that they are imprecatory prayers. It's a bit of a, a misnomer. The idea of, of imprecation is, is a curse, but that's not what's happening here. Instead, this, this prayer of Nehemiah and of the psalmist, of those who are oppressed by uh, those around them, they cry out to God and they cry out for justice. They say, God, bring this out. It's a, it's a lament of crying out to him and asking for God to, to move and act. And at times it is severe. 
And, and this language is those of hurting people. And, and it's times that we read these things and we're made even a little comfortable. When you read through the Psalms and it says, God, break off the teeth in their mouths. And you just, you just kind of cringe a little bit. And you say, that, isn't, isn't that unchristian? Isn't that something that we have to put aside? Jesus, of course, tells us to, to pray for our enemies, to bless and do not curse them. That Paul echoes this. And so what do we do with these, these prayers in Scripture? Jesus, maybe he didn't know that they were there. No, of course, they recognize the fullness of justice in Scripture. My friend and Old Testament scholar, Russ Meek, has wrestled with this, and he, he says that imprecatory fa- prayers saved his faith. That he grew up in the, in the home of those who professed to be believers. His, his stepfather was, uh, was a deacon in their church and well-respected in their community and was abusing he and his siblings at home. And he, he's seeing this and, and just wrestling with, is this what Christianity is? That people like you out here in the world and out here in culture, and at home you are a monster? And he comes face to face with imprecatory prayers. This idea that that those uh, prayers are a framework for us to cry out to God for justice. For where there is abuse, we cry out for God to be judge and avenger. It's the prayer to say, God, save them or stop them. That when we see injustice in this world, we have a framework to come to God with it. That we are not sitting idly by, but we are trusting God to do the work. This is dependence on God to handle our opposition. To to come before God and say, vengeance belongs to you. That we're not seeking in our own strength to respond or to retort or to argue. But instead trusting into the Lord and saying, this is more than, than karma, but we, we see in scripture that they would reap what they, what they sow. And so Nehemiah actually is speaking their words to God. He says, turn their taunts back on their own heads. Give them to be plundered in a land where they are captive. He's inverting the exile itself. He says, let them understand what is happening here. Let them see what is happening here when they come up against us. They're not just coming up against, but ultimately, in verse 5, they have provoked you to anger, O Lord. That God would carry out divine justice. At that same time, we would be ready if, in God's will, he chooses to save those opposers. What a testimony of God's grace as we see in the story of Paul as he is a persecutor of the church who on the road to Damascus comes face to face with God. Who is on his way to arrest and martyr Christians. He becomes one himself. And the early church had to, as so often happens, forgive and welcome in a former persecutor as a brother in Christ. God, save them or stop them. Carry out divine justice. But we also see in this prayer is this cry before God is also a call to lift up your builders. It's to encourage and raise up and strengthen those who are despised. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. This call to be heard, to be seen, to be known is to to raise before God. Lord, you see what's happening. 
You see the state that we're in. You see and you hear what is being said about us. We're going to look to the work, but God, we ask you to take up our cause. This isn't passivity. It's fixing our eyes on the task that we would be too busy to look down. Psalm 90 verse 17 says this. He says, let the favor of the Lord be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. So in the face of opposition, they're not responding with retaliation or with anger or with words or with argument, but with a mind to work. Notice verse 6 one more time. So we built the wall. Those that are opposing them come and they hurl insults and mockery and racism and questions of ability and quality of the work. But we built the wall. And the wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. That what Nehemiah has come to do is not only beginning but it's halfway there. That they would see the progress that's there. That they would mock, but we would build. That we would measure and celebrate progress to say, how has the Lord, the Lord already grown us in these ways? What are the ways that he is increasing his kingdom in our lives? What is the fruit coming out of our hearts? This is part of what we do in community group. Every, uh, every Wednesday, we, we go through highs and lows, and we apply the passage, but we also have these growth updates to say, what is the Lord teaching you in this, in this season? How, how is the Lord strengthening you? How, what questions do you have? What ways uh, can we pray for you? How are we walking alongside one another to see the progress in the faith? Because it's to recognize that there is progress in the faith. Leonard Ravenhill would, would tell this story about a group of tourists uh, who were coming into a village and they walked by an old man sitting by a fence. And, and rather patronizing, uh, one tourist asked, uh, Sir, were any great men born in this village? And the old man pauses and thinks, and he says, No, only babies. We, we think of spiritual giants as those who, who were saved and all of a sudden here is this this giant of the faith, this, this great man or woman of God. But that's not how it works. We all enter as, as babies, as infants of the faith, of, of those born again, learning to walk, learning to run, learning to build and put our hands to the work. And we should see and, and celebrate that progress. See the ways that the Lord is strengthening you. This, this is not to, to beat you down and say, oh, I, I'm not a Nehemiah. I, I'm not an Ezra. I'm not a David. I'm, I'm not a whoever. No, and that's okay. See the ways that the Lord has, has grown you and strengthened you. Look back at, at just checkpoints in your life. Keep a, a journal or a diary to say, these are my prayers and, and these are the things that the Lord is, is bringing about. See the growth that he's doing and, and recognize that we just built. So we built the wall. The wall was joined together with half its height for the people had a mind to work. They were joined together in the task. Last week we, we saw from every gate to every gate, the entire wall uh, around was, was built up. They weren't seeing only to what was before them, only seeing there the prestigious gates. But instead, they were joining together in this task so that the entire 
wall would be joined to half its height because they were committed to the work. Right there, that last phrase, for the people had a mind to work. Your, your translation may say, may have a heart to work. This is the, the Hebrew idea of uh, the center of man. Your, your heart or your, your mind is the, the center of your being and your doing. With all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. Right, This conscious decision in us to commit to the work. Despite the derision and distraction around them, they set their minds, they set their hearts to the work. Despite the accusations against them, they set their hearts, they set their minds to the work. That we would decide in ourselves, in the center of our being and our doing, that we would serve the Lord. That we would seek His kingdom and his will and not our own. That we would speak and we would encourage and we would act as those in Christ. That we would recognize that a communal work is going to build higher and better and stronger than those that are committed only to themselves. And in the midst of it all, we trust that justice is not our own, vengeance is not our own, but because justice is God's, that we can resolve to work steadfastly in the face of opposition. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that you are a God who hears. Lord, that you are a God who sees. And so, God, we cry out before you that you would bring justice. Lord, where there is abuse in this world or in your church, Lord, that you would avenge. Lord, that where there is pain and suffering and sin, Lord, that you would blot it out. Father, restore us. Lord, hold us to you. Lord, and as the psalmist says, we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Father, show us what it looks like in our lives, in our callings, Lord, in our occupations, in our church, to work for you. Lord, to do all things with excellence as unto you and not unto men. Lord, be victorious in this world. Pray these things in the saving name of Jesus Christ, the power of your Holy Spirit.